Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. For our first episode of 2021, we take you to the state's capital and the nation's capital, where I talk with indie photographer David Calvert about the protests in Carson City, and our DC reporter, Humberto Sanchez, about what happened during the storming of the Capitol building and the Nevada delegation's reaction. After that, I sit down with Nevada Independent Editor John Ralston to discuss the road to how we got here and where we might go now. And of course, we'll close our show with the weekly coronavirus update. Six days into the new year, President Donald Trump's supporters gathered across the nation to protest Congress's certification of Joe Biden's victory, falsely arguing that the election was stolen and that there was widespread voter fraud. That's been a talking point of the president and his supporters for months, even though recounts, audits, and about 60 lawsuits across the country failed to turn up any credible evidence of widespread voter fraud, sufficient to affect the results. Supporters of the president have not accepted the outcome of these suits as conspiracy theories continue to flare, and neither has the president. They gathered in Washington, D.C. and in Carson City for demonstrations that had very different outcomes. Indie photographer David Calvert gave me his account of what he saw in Carson City, where a protest stayed peaceful even while things in D.C. became violent. Obviously, it was a different atmosphere in Carson City than what we saw in Washington, D.C. yesterday. But, you know, the message was pretty much the same. It's it's Trump supporters who are upset and wrongly led to believe that democracy has failed them. And they were down there voicing their their anger, their frustration. I've covered a lot of protests in Carson City, you know, less than some photographers, but I've certainly been down there, especially during the legislative session. And protesting was kind of a regular thing on the weekends, and it has been for most of the year. This one was a little bit different. It, it felt kind of like a, a send-off or a going-away party for the president. You know, people were upset, but they were also out there in costumes. There was goofy signage, music playing, a lot of country music and rock and roll, and kind of your your typical Americana 4th of July soundtrack. And people were were having a good time. And, uh, you know, I just I, I took pictures of it. I'd say it was, you know, four to 500 people at its most, probably averaged around 300 people for the majority of the time. It turned into a pretty nice day from a weather standpoint. It was a little cold and gray to begin with, but the sun came out and it was warm and yeah. While the protest remained peaceful, there were moments of anger and frustration from the crowd. David explained to me how this protest was different from ones in the past and what it was like photographing it. There was a, a chant that was at one point, one of the people with a megaphone was leading a, a f- the media chant and the crowd joined in but at the same time like they were listening to a MAGA remix of YMCA and like people were drinking beer and having a good time like hanging out with their neighbors is definitely a a different atmosphere but then you also had you know displays of like armed militia or people dressed as militia and people were carrying guns and you know that adds a lot of tension to to an event and, and to a protest and it's one of the reasons why there was you know such a heavy law enforcement's presence from Carson Sheriff, the legislative police. The protest happened in the middle of a weekday and came as Carson City Sheriff Kenny Furlong urged motorists ahead of time to avoid downtown. The sheriff had also indicated that more law enforcement would be on hand and that the event would be of moderate to high concern. 
Trump had tweeted weeks earlier that the January 6th protest in Washington, D.C. will be wild. The primary difference for me was the fact that this there wasn't a, a counter protest over the summer. A lot of the protests that we saw in Carson City were, you know, half of the, the group would be for progressive causes, Black Lives Matter or in support of you know, Democratic candidates. And then you would have the, the pro-Trump group kind of, you know, down the sidewalk. And you would sort of have this back and forth between the two groups. This was just a Trump crowd. This was uh so you didn't have that natural conflict there. But there was, you know, they were still looking for people to to antagonize or to pit themselves against. You know, the media was in a pretty easy target. And so you would see local television trucks drive by, four and eight drove by, and people would yell at them. And, you know, it was stuff that was as, as common as, you know, yelling fake news. But also, you know, some of it was a little bit more charged with swearing and things like that. And you know, I did everything I could to maintain a low profile when covering the events. You know, I certainly wasn't sneaking around. I'm, I'm standing there with a 300 millimeter lens. Like it's, it's a big camera. That's what I'm doing. I'm there. I'm a photographer. I've got a credential around my neck. Like I, I want people to, to be aware of me, but at the same time, like, I don't, I don't want to be in their face, you know, also COVID. I'll point out that the one person who did come up and try to confront me and, you know, who, who was probably trying to intimidate me was someone who was with a group from California who was there, you know, to, to be seen, which is the irony of someone not wanting their picture taken. You know, you're, you've got guns on your body and camouflage and, you know, better military grade equipment than the people that, that should be wearing it. You're going to get your picture taken. David said that while there were many protesters there without masks, there were some on the edges that were wearing face protection and following the mask mandate. I, I, th I think it's it's unreasonable to assume that everyone who is a supporter of the Trump of President Trump doesn't believe in the pandemic. So even the ones that are there protesting things like closures and mask mandates and you know the the reactions from local government, like some of them are wearing masks hanging out on the edge because you know they're also scared of a, a deadly pandemic and a virus and the risks that come along with that. But then there were also people in the middle of the crowd that were, you know, hugging and like arms around each other, singing and dancing and it was an odd environment. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we are here for Donald Trump! Things in the nation's capital started getting out of hand when attendees started breaching barriers and forced their way into the Capitol building where lawmakers were counting electoral votes. Participants at the protest in Carson City reacted to the news, but stayed peaceful. So the rally started with a playing of the president's speech. And, you know, there were cheering at the applause lines and kind of what you would expect there. When uh, some of the speakers came on in the afternoon, this was after much of the events in the Capitol had had started to happen. You know, there was people encouraging what was happening and there were applause lines for that. But, you know, those are easy things to do when you're, you know, across the country, thousands of miles away. But, you know, overhearing conversations in the crowd, people were talking about it. People were aware of it. Hard not to be. It was a, it was a crazy day to look at your phone. That's for sure. It was just like any other demonstration that they've they've had in front of the legislature. Uh, there wasn't a march to the governor's mansion like we saw earlier in the year. Nobody, as far as I could tell, tried to enter those spaces. And, you know, legislative police was very present. When there's a, a protest, they, they come out of the building and they're standing there and they're watching and they're, you know, near the doors. And the sheriff's department was walking through the crowd, officers on bicycles trying to make sure that people stayed off the streets so that it didn't impede traffic. You know, that it, it didn't seem like that was the intent of this. 
We now move to Washington, D.C., where our reporter Humberto Sanchez lives. He was at home when people started to break into the Capitol building, but he lives close enough that he heard sirens and received an email warning him to stay indoors. It was pretty tense. It reminded me a lot of, of 9-11. I was not on the Hill at the time, but I was in D.C. So I live about 10 blocks from the Capitol, and we were watching, I was watching on TV. I haven't been to the Capitol. I've been up one time since March because there's a lot of pandemic protocols going on, so we try to stay off the, off the Capitol. And the, you saw more protesters showing up in, on the TV feeds and it was getting more intense. And then all of a sudden we, we, they showed these pictures of them uh, on the steps of the door to the house. Like it's a, it's a door that members don't often use, but they, they do sometimes use a big user of that door is Mark Amaday. He likes to, when the, <laughs> when the weather is nice, he likes to go outside and take in a little bit of fresh air from his office and then go right up to vote. This, this door takes you right to the chamber. No public is allowed up there. And when I saw people climbing up there, I, I thought, wow, this is getting re really getting out of hand. So when I saw people climbing the stairs and, and, and basically almost in, in the chamber, I, I, was, I said, wow, that's, that's unusual. And then and people started getting the, the emails about how the, 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 the Capitol complex is on lockdown. The Capitol complex is like under these serious security protocols now. And then as things progressed, I heard a bunch of police cars just racing towards the scene, basically, because they put out the alert. The Capitol Police, while it, while it has, it's a many thousand policemen force, was outmanned, obviously, from what you saw, see on TV. Yeah. So they asked the, the regional counties and, and states to, to help. So, it, you know, they put out the call. It was, it was like a fire. And people were, were everywhere. And just seeing footage of it, they'd gotten into the, both House and Senate chambers. They'd, which you're not allowed to be in. They'd gotten into Statuary Hall. I mean, it's one of the most secure places, at least I used to think so, in, in the country. There's there's a guard at every door. There's a metal detector at every door. Capitol Police are, are really nice people and they do a great job. They make you feel really safe when you're there. And it was really scary to see that to see them overrun and to and to witness this this chaos that you know you only read about in history books from from the War of 1812, really. I asked Humberto to walk me through the day from the perspective of the Nevada delegation in the building. They started the day by confirming the Electoral College votes and then were interrupted by the rioting in the building before coming back to finish the process. So the, the day began, we knew it would be, would be long because we knew there would be objections. They, they met in joint session, so the House and the Senate met in the House chamber. And if there was an objection, they'd immediately break up, go to their respective chambers, debate for two hours, and then rule up or down on whether these electors should be counted or not. And so we knew that was going to happen at least three times because you needed a House member and one Senate member to, for every objection to be heard. And so Arizona was the first one to be objected to, came early in the, in the day, obviously, because it's letter A. And so, so the House and Senate broke up to, to debate these issues. And in the Senate chamber in particular, I, I, in just talking to some of the delegation and some staff, the way the Senate handled it was that, that everybody sat in their seats, essentially, for the, at their desks for, to listen to the debate. And so our, both our senators were in there at the time. And Senator Catherine Cortez Masto was actually the person to speak next while there was a, a lockdown, they, while they called it, they, they halted the proceedings. And so interestingly enough, from what I gathered from our reporting and stuff, folks had gotten in, reporter, rioters, for lack of a better term, had gotten into the, the Senate side during this debate about two o'clock. And there was a bit of a shoving match with, between Capitol Police, who again, were overrun. I saw a quote, somebody saying, you know, you can't, you can't arrest 20 people with one pair of handcuffs. And that's basically what they were up against. They're just too many people and too few uh, security forces. 
And so they initially locked the chamber down. I, I know that reporters that were there, the few that were there, were brought into the chamber and, and they locked the doors and people were banging on the doors uh, trying to get in. They eventually got out and they were taken to a undisclosed location, which there's various places in the capital where these places are designated for you to go and to hide and to stay safe, not, not just hide, but just be to congregate so that you're safe. And so they took the entire members that were there into these secret locations and they waited. And it was about a six hour wait before they, they brought, they came back and they came back to try to make a point that, you know, we're good, this isn't going to hold up our business. You know, the people's business will be done. On the house side, very similar thing happened. There were very moving pictures of essentially a gun, a standoff where people were pointing their weapons, place plain clothes, Capitol Police were pointing their weapons at, at, at protesters. It was very, it was very amazing. I've never thought I would ever see that. They barricaded the, the doors with furniture. I mean, it was yeah. just unbelievable. And so in that situation, leadership had basically told people, at least the Democrat side, that if you're not involved in an in, in objection or anything, that stay in your offices and don't, don't come to the floor because it was a pandemic protocol to try to stay safe. And so all our members basically were off the floor because they were, we would only be required to come up during the Nevada debate. And we were on we were on Arizona, so there was no reason to be on the floor. I talked to Representative Susie Lee, who said that she was in her office and that she as things and she was watching it on TV. And as things were getting hectic, they, they came to move her because there was a, a suspicious package near her office and they took her somewhere and then they took her again to somewhere else after things got even more dangerous. And so. I think that was pretty much everyone's experience on, on the Nevada side. And so, it, and again, there was about six hours between the halting proceedings and reconvening. And they reconvened and actually Senator Cortez Masso gave her speech not soon after that. And, th- and then they went till uh, actually 4 a.m. Eastern time and they objected or they re- rejected the objection to Arizona. They rejected an objection to Pennsylvania Nevada was objected to in the House, but there was no senator attached to that. So there was the objection wasn't heard. And so Pennsylvania was the last debate that they had. And in the, in the Senate side, actually, there was uh, after people had lost, kind of lost their nerve. The two elector, the two objectors, Senate objectors for Georgia said after the, today's events, I'm not I'm no longer objecting. One of them being Kelly Leffler, who lost their Senate race. And after that, they just went through this essentially a roll call of the states and how they voted. And that was that. And after they finished, they wrapped up and everybody went home. But it was it was quite late and it was quite a trying day. In the end, Congress certified Joe Biden's victory in the Electoral College in the wee hours of Thursday morning, even though some Republicans had objected to counting the votes in certain states. That happened in Nevada when Alabama Congressman Mo Brooks and more than 50 of his House colleagues unsuccessfully objected to counting Nevada's votes. So under the Constitution, this is typically a ceremonial process after the election is done. It harkens back to when the, there was a, a chance that someone could sneak in a, a false set of electors, mm-hmm. really. And that's no longer a, a real threat now. And so, but they still go through this whole, because of the Electoral College, they hold, go through this whole process where they essentially just read out the results from each state. They ask for any objection. There's typically none. Not that there hasn't been in the past, but today's were this time was a little bit more fretful and there was a lot more heaviness in the context. And so they read out the, the results, ask for objections. And if there is an objection, the House member will come to the floor, whoever the objector is, will come to the floor and say, I object. 
And in this circumstance, it was always an objection over alleged fraud, which was never proven and, and has been thrown out in every court in the, in the country, wherever there were, had been filed allegations of, of fraud uh, the Trump campaign has lost. It started with Arizona. Arizona had Ted Cruz had said he was going to be the senator to object. And that kicked off this two-hour debate. And that, that basically the argument was that they, they want the Republicans wanted a, a, a commission to study electoral fraud because that, that, that would be some kind of figly for them to, to justify this entire thing. And they, they didn't even get that actually in the end. And so with Nevada, again, you have to have a, one senator, at least one senator and a House member to object. Mo Brooks had, has, he, he singled out about seven states. There was Arizona, He's a representative from Alabama, right? That's right. That's right. And he's a very conservative man. He's very supportive of, of the president, President Trump, that is. And, and he's thinking about, about seven states, and particularly in Nevada, he thought that there was a city, people, undocumented people had voted is what basically the claim that he, he has made. Mm. And again, that's, there's been no proof that that's the case. And, and even, even our Republican Secretary of State has said that the, the, the election was totally above board. And so he made his objection and it, it all lasted maybe 30 seconds. And he, he asked, was asked if he had a senator on, in, if, if the objection was in written form and if there was a senator who had signed on and he had not a senator. And so the, the Vice President Mike Pence said the objection can't be heard because there's no senator and they just went about their business. While Joe Biden is on track to be inaugurated on January 20th and Trump finally acknowledged that there will be a transition to a new administration, the fallout from the siege of the Capitol continues. Some lawmakers want Trump impeached and removed from office early for riling up his supporters ahead of the occupation and for pressuring election officials to change the outcome of the presidential race. And some of those who entered and vandalized the Capitol are now being arrested. We'll be watching closely to see what long-term effects come out of Trump's attempts to discredit the election, both in Nevada and beyond. As you listen to this, it's been about 48 hours since a mob of pro-Trump extremists stormed Capitol Hill. It almost, almost goes without saying that Wednesday's events come not as a surprise, but as the only conclusion of four years of the Trump presidency, and more recently, weeks of Donald Trump's baseless allegations of a rigged election system. Pro-Trump extremists have for weeks discussed plans for January 6th online, from the biggest platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and even Parler, to more niche but still widely read sites like 4chan, 8kun, and forums like The Donald. These online platforms have become the seed for a raft of unsubstantiated conspiracy theories. And even now, at least two Republican Nevada legislators have repeated those theories, even as other Republicans have sought to distance themselves from the events of Wednesday or repudiate the rioters entirely. In any case, Nevada has been no stranger to the political forces that enabled Wednesday's events, and here to break down the how and why of it is Nevada Independent Editor John Ralston. Hi, Jacob. All right, John. So I want to get into some of the specifics of how what happened in D.C. is reverberating in Nevada. But first, I want to get a sense of how we got here specifically. Can you lay out the steps that kind of led us to this week? Well, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot, uh, Jacob, and it seems to me that this was both uh, 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 paradoxically inevitable and shocking, right? What happened in in Washington, D.C., that Trump has uh, 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 enabled this 
uh, not since he became president, but even when he first announced uh, for president coming down that escalator and then talking about rapists and murderers and uh, all of his anti-immigrant rhetoric and everything for him has been about conflict. And so uh, what he did to fuel this rally, uh, aided and abetted by some uh, uh, senators and, and congressmen, uh, is really a, 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 uh, un, uh, an inevitable, as I said, conclusion to his presidency. And all of the reports that he would not call out the National Guard, that he enjoyed this up until the time when it became violent, uh, uh, fit in with, with, with a guy who is uh, essentially uh, uh, telegraphed that this is who he is for a long time. Mm. And so Nevada specifically was one of these states that were called into question alongside Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, etc. I think it's worth noting just before we get into everything that happened this week, um, there was a lot made by the Nevada Republican Party, especially um, about the, we'll say, invalidity of certain Nevada votes. Um, How do you think that that has played into the way that Republicans here in this state are viewing what's happened this week? Well, I think too many people uh, believe it. Uh, I think uh, uh, because of what Adam Laxalt, the former attorney general, especially, and Michael McDonald, the state Republican Party chairman, and uh, uh, Jacob, the, the Nevada Republican Party Twitter account has up until very, very recently continued to fuel all of this uh, nonsensical uh, uh, and really damaging claims of, of voter fraud. Uh, and so they are whipping people into a frenzy uh, here in the same way that Trump and others did in Washington, uh, D.C. The real difficulty, of course, and the really insidious part of this is it's very hard to unring that bell. Uh, do I think they should apologize? Sure. But how are you going to stop you know, uh, this fury that you have unleashed Uh, on people who really don't know, a lot of them don't know the ins and outs of this. Uh, And so if they are told by people they trust that there is fraud, that the election was stolen, the stop the steal rallies, uh, they're upset. They're looking for something to believe. It's tough to put that back in the bottle to uh, do uh, more than one or two metaphors in one answer. So I want to dig into that a little bit, because as I mentioned earlier, the Republican reaction to this week's events have been a little mixed. You've seen some Republicans say, you know, the violence is unacceptable, but you've also had some Republicans start parroting these wild conspiracy theories that actually, no, it wasn't Trump supporters, but rather it was Antifa who stormed the Capitol. Uh, This obviously is unsubstantiated and really not supported by any evidence. Um, But yet we have, again, these two legislators saying it. So like you said, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. So where does the Nevada Republican Party go from here? How does it conduct itself? It's a really good question. Uh, We're going to find out in just a few weeks when the legislature uh, starts. But I I think uh, the Nevada Republican Party, or at least its elected officials here, are are like those in Washington. They're divided now. Uh, And and you laid it out very well. You only have two right now that I know of in in Annie Black and John Ellison, who have explicitly uh, uh, talked about voter fraud, the election being stolen, and this ridiculous conspiracy theory that it wasn't Trump supporters. It was Antifa insurgents dressed as Trump supporters who did that. But how do you deal with that when the legislative body actually starts to meet? How do you marginalize these people or do you welcome them into the fold? And some of these Republicans uh, either enabled or explicitly uh, uh, said that there was fraud 
during during the election uh, cycle and after the election, Jacob. So that's going to be very, very difficult to legislate under those circumstances. And, you know, think think about the, how you couldn't have a worse possible backdrop for this kind of thing when you have a state that has been disproportionately devastated economically by the pandemic and is still dealing with, with, with the pandemic and how to distribute vaccines and other really important questions. And, and you have this stuff still roiling just a few weeks before uh, uh, the session starts and very even less than that before the governor has to give his state of the state. I'm sure he will issue calls for bipartisanship and working together for the good of Nevada. But uh, you got to be really optimistic. And I'm trying to remain really optimistic to believe that's going to happen. Right. And I want to I want to keep asking about this a little bit, because like you said, the session is coming up here. A lot of difficult decisions are going to be on the table, especially when it comes to revenue. As you mentioned, the Nevada economy has been disproportionately affected by the way the coronavirus has shut down certain segments of the economy. And because of that, um, the big discussion so far has been about taxes. And this is something that even though Democrats control both chambers of, of the legislature and they control the governor's mansion, they cannot make these tax decisions on their own because they do not have a supermajority. And so so when we talk about bipartisanship, how does this conversation that has been spawned from this week, but also, like you said, five years of, of a Trump control of the Republican Party change the way that uh, Nevada politicians are going to have to navigate these really tough policy questions that are coming up? Well, I talked uh, about optimism and and. Uh to be fair to both caucuses, there are responsible legislators in both the Republican and Democratic caucuses who understand the enormity of the problem uh, facing this state. And by the way, Jacob, it could easily get worse before it gets better. As you know, and as we read in, in, in our colleague Megan Messerly's pieces every week, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And we don't know yet about the vaccine and, 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 and how, how fast it will be distributed. We know it's been slow out of the gate. So so we have to believe that saner, more thoughtful voices are going to prevail. Uh, the problem is, is, is that too often these legislators of both parties only look ahead uh, to the next election and what they can and can't do that will cause them a problem or not cause them a problem. I find it very unlikely that you're going to have Republicans voting for taxes. Uh, however, uh, will there be some kind of raising of revenue that they will try to couch as not tax increases? Maybe because you just can't cut the Nevada budget as much as it needs as it needs to um, to revenue to fill that hole. You can't do it. We already have a very tight state budget, no matter what anybody tells you. We don't fund education or public health very generously. So. I'm hoping that there are responsible people in both caucuses who understand that and that the governor, I, I'm, I'm sure, understands it and that they can work together. But of course, the danger is, is this, this disintegrates into the same kind of partisanship and everyone's in their corner that we've uh, seen all too frequently. Don't forget one thing that we haven't talked about is this is also the session when they have to redraw all of their own political lines, which is the most political act, their district lines that they, that they can commit. And so how that plays into this, we don't know yet. 
Mm. So I guess I want to finish with that. I mean, obviously, we have a lot of open questions that we're simply not going to have answers to for a long time. And thinking forward to 2022, it's a long way away from now. Um, But I think it is relevant to the policy questions, right? This electoral positions and the electoral positions of both parties. The Democrats are going to have a tough time holding the seats that they currently hold in in, uh, 2022, assuming conditions hold. Governor Steve Sisolak has had to deal with a lot of problems that have not made him particularly popular among certain segments of Nevada. And so um, I'm curious from your perspective, it's early, we're a long way away. Um, but what does it look like in 2022? Do we expect anything to, to shift in Nevada's political landscape? Well, the last thing you said uh, is the most important that I'm not copying out. It is early. And we really, we really won't know what the lay of the land is until after the session and see how everything looks uh, after, the, after we sort through the rubble. Uh, Steve Sisolak uh, has suffered because he's the governor and whether it's because of self-inflicted wounds or because the pandemic and the economy are just so bad that anyone would have suffered, you can uh, put the, your own percentages to that. And, but but he, he is going to be potentially vulnerable. Uh, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, uh, who is the other marquee race is going to be potentially vulnerable in a state where it's still uh, we're, we're still a purple state, lean blue, but a purple state, uh, I, I think. But the problem for the, that the Democrats have, and this is a problem I guess all parties want to have, is when you essentially control almost every seat that's up, then you are obviously have the most to lose in the election. They have all the all the constitutional offices except for Secretary of State. Uh, they they have the two competitive congressional districts. So they are most vulnerable going into 2022. But we're not going to know until six, eight months from now how vulnerable they are, especially the governor, uh, come come uh, the next election. Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there for now. John Ralston is the editor of the Nevada Independent. John, thanks so much. Thanks, Jacob. And now we want to take a minute to dive a little deeper into the context of the coronavirus in Nevada. To help us do that, as always, is Nevada Independent Healthcare reporter Megan Messerly. Megan, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. All right, Megan. So it's 2021 now. And so uh, as always, before we do anything, we have to start with the numbers. So noting that we're recording um, today at 930, it's Friday, January 8th. What can you tell us about the data? Yeah, so we're sitting a little bit above 240,000 cases uh, identified in Nevada since the beginning of the pandemic. These are individual people who've tested positive for COVID-19. You know, the last time uh, we talked, you know, we had looked at this, you know, sort of, you know, surge before Thanksgiving. We saw a little dip around Thanksgiving and then it started going back up. Um, we saw sort of a similar pattern around the holidays where we saw, you know, again, little dip again. And now we're seeing cases go back up again. So we're in this period where we're trying to watch and see, okay, you know, where, where do we go from here? Um, you know, are we seeing a post-holiday surge? How high does that surge get? Um, are people, you know, going to start taking things seriously again after the holidays and, and cases will go down again? So we're kind of in this wait and see period. Um, I do think it is, however, worth noting some of the differences um, between the, the situations in individual counties, because actually, if you look at the data, you can see that uh, the situation in Clark County is, is not good right now. Um, it's, it's pretty close to um, reaching 
its previous record. If you look at it, we're, we're not quite back up at that peak yet, but we're, we're getting there. Um, whereas if you look at Washoe County, Washoe County had this, you know, we were talking about, you know, throughout the fall, this, this big surge that Washoe County was seeing when it hadn't seen a surge really over the summer, at least not like Clark County did. Uh, so it experienced sort of the worst of it in, in, in those November months. And then it started to decline. And, you know, we've seen a tiny, tiny increase in recent days, but it's not like what we're seeing in Clark County. So again, you know, waiting to see, okay, do we see a tiny holiday bump, but then it goes back down? Uh, does Washoe County get anywhere near back up to, you know, is in sort of the, the 500 cases on average a day, uh, which is a lot for Washoe County, um, particularly given its size in comparison to Clark County. So we're just keeping an eye on those numbers as well. But I always recommend the people, um, if they're taking a look at our data page, to scroll down toward the bottom and look at some of the county by county numbers, just because Clark is so big. And so their numbers are always going to overshadow uh, the state's numbers. And so uh, it's worth taking a look at some of those county by county numbers, especially in Washoe County, because um, it is is a big county. You'll see in some of the smaller counties, you have some of those tiny fluctuations just because, uh, you know, like five new cases makes a big difference when you're when you're in a rural county. So you see some of those um, jagged spikes, but but the Washoe County uh, graph in particular, I think is really one worth keeping an eye on. Um, before we move on, we're talking about deaths a little bit. We're, we're at um, 3,349 deaths uh, as of right now. Um, you know, the, the death trend really has um, tracked pretty closely. You know, we've talked about that lag in relation to the case trend, but it has tracked pretty closely to that case trend, at least in terms of following the pattern. Uh, you know, we're, we're not at sort of that, that peak right now, but we are sort of being on a high number of deaths on average that we're seeing reported each day. So, uh, again, that's expected based on what we saw in the case data. Again, it's just a question of, okay, where do cases go from here? And then how, how do deaths follow along with that? And then the last thing we're noting is the hospitalization numbers. We're, we've kind of been at a little bit of a plateau right now. Um, the numbers in Northern Nevada have been uh, going down, which which is good for them. Um, obviously, we've talked about sort of the difference between the Clark and Washoe situations, but statewide, we've seen kind of a, a plateau, maybe tiny bit of a decrease, but more so we've seen fluctuations in those hospitalization numbers. So again, just keeping an eye on those to make sure that, you know, we have the resources we need to treat all these patients that, that are coming in with COVID-19. Hmm. So one thing that I think is at the top of a lot of people's minds right now is vaccinations and the way that these vaccination programs are going as states vaccinate healthcare workers and start looking toward vaccinating more people in the broader public. In Nevada, I think there have been some questions over uh, exactly who's going to get rolled into tier two and when those those upcoming vaccinations are really going to start when we see uh, groups like teachers uh, or, or other non-healthcare worker groups right get access to these vaccines. Um, so I guess as a baseline, what do we know right now, it's 2021, um, about these vaccination programs that we didn't know last year? Yeah, so uh, worth noting, I haven't checked this morning to see if the CDC has more updated data, but um, the state right now doesn't have a a vaccination dashboard. So we've been having to get all of our vaccination numbers from the CDC directly. We're at about um, 37,000 doses of the COVID-19 vaccine um, administered. You know, we have seen this rollout be kind of slow in Nevada. You know, we've seen that happen um, around the nation. State officials here have said that's largely a byproduct of the fact that um, you know, recording those doses administered into this 
state's vaccination platform, which is called WebIZ, um, is kind of a laborious process. So they've they've said that that number may be uh, lower than it truly is because of that lag. Of course, it's hard to, hard to know, you know, by, by how much is uh, is it lagging? You know, how how much is attributable to the sort of slow rollout, and how much is attributable to that um, data lag that state officials have been talking about. So that's something that we're keeping a close eye on. As far as the the tiers themselves, um, a lot of this is happening on a, on a county by county basis, and I think that's an important point to make is that people may hear about, you know, something's happening in Washoe, something's happening in Elko, and that's different than what's happening in Clark County. And I think we're going to see um, sort of an individualized, regionalized approach to the vaccine rollout because counties are going to be kind of moving through their stock based on okay, you know, we've made these appointments for healthcare workers. We're not seeing healthcare workers sign up for vaccination appointments. So time to move on to the next group. And they're going to be doing some of it, I think, in that fashion as we move forward. But with that in mind, um, you know, my colleague, colleague Jackie wrote a story uh, this week looking at um, K through 12 doses, which, ha- which are starting to be administered uh, to K through 12 staff. Um, so for instance, um, in rural counties, they're actually already, uh, some of them administering doses to, to K through 12 staff this week. Washoe County, I was on a, a press call this week where they talked about how they are going to start administering some of their first doses to K through 12 staff um, this weekend uh, on Saturday at, a, at their, their pod, which is their, their drive-through um, testing operation now turned uh, vaccine, vaccine distribution site. So they're going to be scheduling some of those folks while continuing to vaccinate healthcare workers. Uh, Clark County, on the other hand, are, they're not there yet. Southern Nevada Health District officials uh, on a different press call this week, you know, said they're still really working through those healthcare workers. They're working through, you know, the the, the staff at, um, you know, behavioral health hospitals and some of these other, uh, you know, like ancillary medical facilities. The health district has set up um, some of these, you know, clinics to try and get those folks vaccinated. So they're, they're not moving yet um, into that uh, K through 12, which is really the top of what's known as tier two right now. So we are going to see somewhat of an individualized rollout of this, and we'll be waiting to see, you know, when Clark County gets to that point, obviously Clark County just has a logistical challenge. You know, Clark County School District is the fifth largest school district in the nation. That's a lot of people to vaccinate. Uh, so it's just, you know, a bigger operation uh, to undertake in Clark County than it is in, in Washoe County or some of these rural communities where, you know, you you could probably name all the, all the healthcare workers, you know, on a, a couple of hands and you could, you know, all the school staff, right? Um, so it's a little bit of a dif- different situation in Clark County. So we're going to be keeping an eye on that in the coming days and weeks to see sort of how, how the pace continues uh, in Clark compared to the, the other portions of the state. But right now vaccinations are continuing uh, just maybe a little bit slower than some folks um, had hoped. And I think it's worth saying, um, working on a, a vaccination uh, Q&A that will hopefully come out sometime uh, in the next few days, like this week, early next week. But we've been getting a lot of questions about, you know, when when will it be my turn? When is the time? And, and these are some questions that I think folks are still sorting through right now. You know, we just don't have a good sense of uh, who is an essential worker, right? That has not been delineated. Uh, what groups of people um, fit into that? You know, if you look at the federal level, there are certain groups that the federal government has delineated as essential, but the state has not yet said, you know, this is who we consider essential. So we're waiting for some of that information. Um, again, at the federal level, there's guidance on, you know, what some of these key pre-existing conditions might be in terms of, you know, moving folks to the front of the line to get vaccinated. The state, though, we need them to, to take a look at that and say, okay, here's here's the list of who, who we're prioritizing. And we just don't have that that information yet. A lot of that is still, um, you know, we're waiting to, to see what guidance the state releases on that. So we're kind of at a wait and see. People are being vaccinated, but we're still waiting for more information. 
All right. Well, we will have to see uh, what new information we get in the coming days and weeks, but we'll have to leave it there for now. As always, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com. There you can find weekly updates from Megan in her coronavirus contextualized series, as well as a regularly updated dashboard with all the latest COVID-19 data. Megan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank David Calvert, Humberto Sanchez, John Ralston, and Megan Messerly for being on the show this week. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you like to listen. And share it on social media. It really does help the show grow and reach more people. If you want to tell us what a great job we're doing or if you have suggestions, you can either email us at joey at the or jacob at the or you can fill out our podcast survey, which you can find as a comment on the Twitter or Facebook posts about this episode. People with Bodies, a local Reno band, wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify and Bandcamp. And original music from our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>